Welcome to Team Rabbit Hole Edition 221, ever onward with Ari Moshe Wolf, astrologer, musician, Sagittarius. Join the team as we get to know Ari, a warm-hearted, adventurous soul who has been hacking life, mastering evolutionary astrology, putting out music, and has recently become a father. Well met. Hello. That's so, what a great introduction. I tried to cover all the bases I could grok uh, with my limited awareness of you personally. Um, something we do on the podcast is correspond the uh, episode number, in this case, 221, to a major arcana. That would actually be the Hierophant card in this case. I am the teacher of universal law, very appropriate for Sagittarius. Uh, the Hierophant, which is the high priest, is a caretaker of spiritual knowledge, teaching others what you know, awakening to greater understanding of the world, and paying attention to the details. Raphael, what card do you have? So now we have the angel number 35. It is the angel of reconciliation belonging to the virtues. This angel is invoked when you want to be at peace with everyone to eliminate negative energies of people who want to hurt you and assisting in the reconciliation process for spouses. Governs over wills, inheritance and matters of estate this angel will help maintain peace and harmony among families. It is the God of joy. And the affirmation is, I have opened the gate to the hidden experiences and ordinary things. And I recognize and appreciate the magic all around me. Belonging in the tarot to the 10 of pentacles, qualities include reconciliation, harmonious family relationships, and humanities and social sciences. So I'm curious, Ari, uh, if any of that resonates with you. Sure. I mean, it feels perfectly synchronicitous to my life right now. But it also feels just very resonant to the astrology, to the energies of the day. And that we can get into for sure. Uh, it's funny, I was looking at your chart. Your uh, north node is exactly conjunct my moon, actually. So party on Wayne there. Um, so I became aware of you probably two or three, maybe four years ago. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, you were working with Kaipacha Lesher and his whole new paradigm astrology crew. And I was seeing you on Facebook doing videos from a van <laughs> and kind of, uh, it seemed like you were doing the vagabonding thing, playing acoustic guitar at times, going live and playing guitar. Um, so it seemed like you had a foot in a few doors and even more, like more recently on Facebook, I think I saw that you had a child in the past six months to a year kind of thing. So um, that's how I'm aware of you. We've never really talked, so thanks for coming on. I know it's kind of a gamble, um, but I think it'll pay off in the end. So um, I'm kind of curious, uh, and you could be like as long-winded as you want or as short-winded as you'd like. Um, kind of where did you start off? I think you were born in Jersey. I was actually born in New Jersey as well, from Summit, and grew up there until I was about eight. But anyway, where did you grow up? What kind of culture were you into? Um, tell us a little about, you know, when you started waking up to the magic of astrology, music itself, things like that, and we can get caught up to the present moment. Cool. That's a delight. Thank you. Um, you know, I remember seeing you actually on Facebook that you would do tarot readings every once in a while, and I just remember appreciating your vibe. So it was a delight to hear from you to join on this podcast. 
I grew up in Wanamasa, New Jersey. So, you know, I'll keep it relatively short-winded because, you know, who wants just a story? I do. I'm a Gemini, of course. But do oh, yeah. That's, that's well. half the show, so take your time, but it's up to you. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, um, what, what feels alive to speak to is I grew up in a, in a pretty open-minded household, but um, was raised with an Orthodox Judaism. So I went to school in a very religious community and, you know, grew up with a sincere desire to know the truth. So, you know, Sagittarius at the core. And this desire to know the truth was always about looking towards the teachings of the religion, towards my teachers, and hearing their answers, hearing what they had to say about the right way to live, the right way to be. And an area that was always conflicting to me was that even when I was a child, I knew in my heart that there was something greater than beyond the scope of the, the more dualistic context that I was provided. The, this is right, this is wrong, this is how to know God, this is the right way to live. And I really wanted to know that, but as I grew up, the, the social consequences, of course, of really listening to intuition, to inner guidance, felt really great. And so I, I went deeply into Judaism, into orthodoxy. And at a certain point, just got to the point where the, the reality of my questioning and hormones, where my human biology didn't, there, there wasn't an answer for my humanity, for something that I was experiencing emotionally, sexually, um, philosophically, that, that could be satisfied within the construct of religion. So I studied really hard and I went really deeply into it and got to a point where I realized, you know, the, the questions that I'm asking determines the field of answers that I might get. And this is a very good Gemini thing, right? Like there are, there's potentially a lot of data and facts out there, but the, the data, the information that we receive actually depends on what we're looking for because there's infinite possible data points in existence. We create it really. And so I, I kind of had this moment of awakening where I realized the questions I was asking, the searching, you know, is the Torah real? What is God? Do I have to live this way? It was creating a very specific positionality from which I was then seeking to find answers for these very particular questions. But I had this really curious thought. If I drop the questions, what's the framework for my life? What am I doing? What's the basis for my experience and for where I'm going and how I understand and interpret my reality? So, you know, around, around my nodal return, which is generally when people begin to experience a really significant shift, I think of the nodal return as one of the important stations along the soul journey where the core evolutionary intentions for the incarnation sort of come into effect. So there's a sort of readiness for the soul to begin to engage with the, the greater purpose and potential of its own existence, of its own incarnation. So there's a lot of, you know, leaving the past behind, south node, really moving into what is the unfolding evolutionary trajectory of this time. But it's a very hard time. Nodal returns are not easy because it, they are profound junctures. It, you know, the, the, the way consciousness works, I've come to understand, is that there's the truth of what it is, right? Who we are is sort of unbound. It's not 
it's not inherently conditioned. It's not inherently defined. Like our true beingness, it's free. It's deeply sovereign and there's complete agency. And yet there's also this element of profound conditioning. Consciousness tends to identify itself with the known, with parameters of the past, of what's familiar. So these nodal return periods, and of course nodal squares and nodal oppositions, but in particular nodal returns, are these junctures where the soul is faced with this moment where there's what is known, and then there's what's unfolding, what's actually happening. And it, it can be pretty revelatory and profound, but often really difficult. So that was a time in my life where I really just started to open up to spirituality, began dancing. I, would, I was living in New York City, went to college in New York City for a year at a Jewish uni university. And um, we'll go out to anywhere where there was music and just sweat and dance, get back on the subway and sort of my life became very split between two worlds and progressively, you know, whenever there's a big duality in our life or like a really clearly defined question or a seemingly very apparent contradiction, it's, it's always the moment before there's some kind of integration. You know, it's when there's more ambiguity and things kind of feel hazy and not very sensational when, when you can't really feel a lot, then often there needs to be a lot more activity or a lot more stimulation, a lot more, catalyst in our life to take us to that place where we can actually meet where we're not unified within ourselves. So I feel at that time in my life, <clears throat> the, the split was very strong and it was almost like this has to go somewhere, you know, like you can't, you can't live in that state of division indefinitely. There had to be some sort of breaking point, some sort of synthesis. Um, that was around the time. I mean, there's, I met a woman, she had body odor. She didn't shave her armpits. That was kind of triggering for me. She smoked pot. That was kind of uncomfortable for me. There's like, there's a whole, I met a guy on the subway who read my pulse and, you know, told me not to masturbate. And I was like, how, how do you know all these things about me? And met, met a psychic man and saw an acupuncturist began taking Qigong, a Tai Chi rather. You do have a scorpion became, immune, so I'm sure you were probably like, what the hell? How do I feel about what you're telling me? <laughs> well, actually, I mean, the sexuality piece is important. I mean, I have a lot of second house planets, including Pluto. Um, and in my conditioning, and including Saturn, right? So Saturn, you can think of that as the, the shaming and the judgment, right, around sexuality. I grew up in a culture where um, releasing your seed um, for any purpose beyond procreation was actually a sin. Big party foul. And big, yeah. And so there's a lot of conditioning around that. And so at the same time, I began to open open up my awareness to the chi, to the energy systems of the body, to the, the idea of life force, the idea of we have a wealth of energy and resource inside of ourselves that we can either cultivate or deplete. So what I found for a while is I went from orthodoxy to a different, more spiritual, universalized cosmological system that was telling me, okay, yeah, still, don't release that energy. Learn how to master it. But there was a process on, along my journey for many years of needing to overcome the shame. Like you can't cultivate. You can't practice sexual cultivation. You can't learn how to transmute energy and cultivate this wealth inside if there's shame, 
if there's judgment about ejaculation, if there's fear and judgment around that. So a big part, and this is, you know, if Saturn work in general, you know, before we can find mastery, before we can really live with a certain level of agency and ground in self-authority, we have to face our conditioning and the internalized judgment and shame that often goes unchecked. Um, when shame isn't met, it, it creates a lot of a lot of pain in one's life and usually in the life of others. And that's I mean that's an interesting topic to go into, and we'll see if that wants to happen. But um, so there's just a lot of mysticism. I was meeting a lot of people, having a lot of powerful experiences, where I progressively started to validate. Okay, life is a lot more than what I've known what's happening here is not what it seems to be. There's something underneath the surface and I deeply want to know that. And I remember there was once this time, this acupuncture, this, this man who read my pulse was also an Orthodox Jew. Very interesting soul, very, very fascinating being. Very religious, very Orthodox, but very psychic, very cosmically attuned. So he was in touch with angels and, you know, can read people. Um, but he really suggested I stay with an orthodoxy. And I remember this one moment where he, he basically saw that I've made my decision. And he saw that it would be a hard path. And I just remember him giving me some kind of blessing or, I don't know, maybe just praying for some sort of support or the angels to be with me, something of that nature. But that was a very strong moment for me um, where it was being reflected to me that there's no going back. It, it's one of those things, like when you, when you, once you start seeking awakening, uh, you better complete it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it sucks if you don't, because it's a hard journey. And the spiritual path, while on one level, it's, it's a realization of something that's essentially true and deeply healing and forgiving. And ultimately, it's, it's a fundamentally healing thing to come across. The path of this realization isn't easy. Because all illusions, all beliefs of separation, all the shadow, all the things that we're afraid to meet within ourselves, it has to come to the surface. So, you know, leaving the safe container of orthodoxy where there are rules, there are, it tells you how to, it tells you how to stay safe. It's the higher it tells you how, 101. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, 100%. And when, from, from a Sagittarius point of view, it's also philosophically very sound. It says this is, what to believe it, it creates cohesion but in the the moment the mind says is this the whole truth is there another way to look at this you know is is this limiting the journey is there greater realms of experience and realization that can be had beyond this construct you know so once once any soul questions to the point where the constructs are no longer and this doesn't even if you know anyone listening this doesn't have to be about leaving a religious construct. It, this is something we do all the time. It's like once you leave the Shire, you're a changed person. <sighs> Absolutely. And you, it's, it, you're going to, yeah, exactly. And it, it's one of those things that um, it, it takes, it brings a soul to take responsibility for the journey and that you, you can't hide, you can't protect yourself. You can't go back to the known. And if you can try, you can lie to yourself for a time, but we can't lie to the fact that there is something in us that knows there's more. So as a part of this moreness, as a part of this, I can't ignore 
All right, Ari, maybe try again your last sentence. Oh, whoops, yeah. No, my yes. conditioning, yeah, right there. Yeah, my conditioning didn't tell me that astrology is wrong. I'm getting it. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we got you. It was just okay, uh, good, good. make sure your thumb doesn't slip. Yeah. Um, but it did tell me that astrology shouldn't be studied. And I remember one moment in high school, astrology, I mean, the Talmudic teachings are full of mysticism and even astrological references. And um, But generally, that's brushed over. You know, it's it's not in, in the mainstream, and this is changing. You know, every every mainstream culture itself is evolving right now. It's a part of the collective evolution. But for the most part, then and even still now, these things aren't so acceptable. So astrology was mentioned, and there's this teaching. It, it goes something like "Ein Mazal Yisrael," which is something like the Mazal. You know, Mazal Tov, right? But the, Mazal Tov is, is good good sign. <laughs> Like Mazel Tov is may, may may you have a good sign or may you have a good the Mazalot are constellations, so you know may you have a good sign is basically interpreted as good luck, but it's an astrological reference, and so you know the statement in Mazal Yisrael is astrology doesn't apply to the Israelites, and when I heard that, I was deeply affected. Um, I didn't care about the teaching that it doesn't apply to the Israelites. To me, the fact that that statement existed means astrology is real. It's like, if it doesn't apply to someone, it means it applies to someone. And I was like, my religion believes in astrology? And so I, that was, you know, something that I couldn't shake. So it happened in several stages, but at a certain point, I was full on Google and astro.com and reading secular astrology books. It was just this deep, curiosity if astrology is real what the heck is it right like what is it and there's this is the thing about me i i couldn't feel satisfied with a lot of the descriptive astrology that i would read because i knew that there was something deeper happening on the soul journey and so anything that was defining or limiting for me didn't feel like the whole truth there had to be a greater reason for why I have the chart that I have. Like nothing, nothing could be just irrelevant. Everything had a had profound meaning. And so when I hear people speaking about the ascendant, your Mercury, your Pluto, back then I had a, a thirst to understand, but why is this my chart, right? What's the reason? What's the purpose? What's the saying? Is it just like a blanket statement and then you die? Like what's actually going on here? So I was actually disillusioned uh, for a while, I bought lots of books and uh, the deeper need to know who I am and what this life is all about. Um, I, I just couldn't satisfy that. And I felt a lot of judgment towards most uh, astrological books and authors. So I got rid of my books and there's a Jupiter teaching that says, uh, this is something Jeffrey Wolf Green actually taught that I really appreciate. You have to let go to receive. You know, we don't often think of Jupiter in terms of letting go to receive. Um, but Jupiter is always about the expansion of awareness. And so we need to let go of our beliefs, of our ideas, of what we're holding on to, to be able to kind of cultivate more awareness, see more. It's a very practical teaching. So I let go of trying to find answers in the way that I was. In a way, that's kind of been a theme, you know, it's like Talmud, Torah, making that the bottom line then letting go of that and i was able to go to a, an, another dimension then even letting go of astrology 
And on its own, a, t- a friend introduced me to the teachings of Jeffrey Wolf Green. And it just became an immediate recognition. I knew that there was truth in those words, you know, that, that his teachings were pointing to something essential about who I am and this whole journey. I just couldn't, I couldn't deny that. So over the next several, I also studied with Adam Gainsburg, who also has a soul focus orientation to astrology and, you know, my work going deeply in the rabbit hole of EA was, of evolutionary astrology, was going deeply into who I am as a soul. I'm looking at the chart from the perspective of how does a chart reflect me, my own as a soul, my own ongoing evolutionary journey, my own awakening. And it's been a part of the path of me cultivating an attitude that looks upon everyone, every life, and every life experience that we have as ultimately a template from which we are gradually waking up to remember who we are. You know, not everyone's life journey or incarnation or particular lifetime will be about framing it in that way, because we all have our own unique journey and our own path and our own way of interpreting and thinking about these things that are kind of intangible to the linear mind, to tell you the truth. Uh, you can't really name our true identity. You can try to describe it, but it's not it's not one philosophy, philosophy or construct will actually you know, be the one that has it totally all right. You know, evolutionary astrology is one way of pointing to that thing that you really can't get in words. It can just right. be it pointed like, to. It has to be. Yeah. It seems like no model encapsulates everything, but even in the presuppositions uh, uh, proffered by evolutionary astrology, not, I mean, uh, there's a lot of types, you know, Vedic and all this kind of stuff, but it seems that most don't, t- they tend to try to look, uh, and I'm not against this, but it's a uh, skimming of the surface of this lifetime, whereas it seems Jeffrey Wolf Green's work, um, which I have some of his books, but I haven't gotten terribly deep into, um, just because I'm a double fucking Gemini and I'm distractible with Chiron. Um, it seems like it's trying to make sense of things over a longer course, like with um, you know different kinds of um, like skip steps and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It really zeroes in on the idea that there is a profound purpose and reason for the totality of our life experience. And the teaching is that the soul is responsible for the entirety of its life because everything is pointing us back to ourself. And that's a really profound teaching that, you know, resonates with the teachers of all kinds of traditions, of all spiritual paths for so many years. It's sort of everything's inside and the universe is inside and that everything is reflecting us back to ourself. And there's only one of us here. You know, we can say this in many different ways. So looking at our life from an evolutionary astrology perspective says the chart speaks to the karmic dynamics that are unraveling in this lifetime. And the soul actually creates the program for its incarnation. Here's a life you're going to come into. Here are the experiences you're going to come into. And this is a template from which you're going to continue along. You know, it's in the last chapter in your last lifetime, you were working out these things and you died with these unresolved desires. You died with these dynamics running through your consciousness and whatever we're still holding on to is what we take with us you know we don't take the body or the name or even the linear memories necessarily or necessarily we don't take any of those things with us but we do take the resonance of what's inside and our resentment our grievances our fears that's where we're unraveling our own separation that's where we're healing that's where we are returning to the true resiliency and the unity and the clarity of who we truly are. So 
working with evolutionary astrology, seeing the chart from the soul perspective is really a way of helping an individual see their life from the perspective of how is everything an opportunity? How is everything an invitation for me to grow, for me to evolve? So it, it resonated with the core of my being. And Was there any one particular aspect? I mean, not to get nitty gritty real mm -hmm. quick, but I'm like, were you like, oh shit, that got explained very readily with Jeffrey's model. Because um, what you're kind of saying in my mind is coming, I mean, maybe it's an infinitely long totem pole and we're carving. It's like, oh, we had the head of a raven at one in one point, but we're still going with the next thing. So it's like we have different aspects we're focusing on, though the, the tree pole is one pole, I guess you could say. So, um, but when you kind of, you know, had this disillusionment or whatever, um, you know, bottle the books at Barnes & Noble, return them within the month or whatever happened. Um, what was the thing that stuck? What, what smacked you the heart? I mean, just is it ineffable? Like you're just like, it resonates and I can't quite put my finger on it? Or was there one kind of mechanism in his thinking that seems to, you know, make sense of the whole shebang? I don't remember the specific wording, but it was in the first page of the introductory section of Pluto, the evolutionary journey of the soul. There is a certain uh, clarity in speaking about the chart as reflecting the soul's reality. I mean, I remember him speaking about the moon the moon corresponding to the ego structure that the soul creates to facilitate and emotionally integrate its experiences. Speaking about the nodes, speaking about the idea that the nodal axis itself corresponds to the self-construct that the soul creates. And this resonated because it's like, I know that my sense of self isn't really real, right? It's just a phantom. It's, it's sort of a projection of self, but who am I? And that, that's, that's been sort of the, the, the Zen Koan, the inquiry that you know, many spiritual paths will point us to it. Who are you? We have self-image, self-concept, but that changes. It's not, our, it's not our true ultimate identity. So hearing him speak about the moon, the lunar nodes, as a projection of the soul. So that like a residual is, image almost in the matrix. Yeah, yeah. He, he describes it as the, um, the function of the ego is similar to the way the lens of a film projector focuses the light. And without that lens, the light's just totally diffused. So it creates a focusing agent or a vehicle for the soul to play out its evolutionary journey, for the soul to evolve. So the human construct, the ego, the self-concept, is the vehicle for this whole life activity that allows the soul to evolve. But it's like, we are the soul. We are what we are. And the self-concept is the way in which we're playing out human experiences. And as we evolve, the self-concept necessarily changes along with that so we can have new experiences. That's what's up. Um, I'm kind of curious, Raphael, given what he said so far, how this lines up with your, uh, like Raphael, I should just say, like this whole podcast is kind of his idea. I posted a DMT trip report back a few years, like maybe in 2013 <laughs> or 14, where I was like, having Kundalini activations with Egyptian deities and talking about my faith. I'm a Christian. And I was just like, what the heck? Um, and anyway, he responded to that. And then we've been buddies for a long time, whenever I was tripping or, you know, just shooting the shit. And he started kind of, he was always into Bashar and just things that were so foreign to me that I, I didn't even have the reference for how to like grok it. And then when Jupiter entered Sagittarius, ironically, he, I was starting to do starseed activations and be like, maybe it's more than just a Jungian projection of an archetype, maybe there's more to it than this. Um, anyway, Raphael, I'm kind of curious, uh, given what he's saying about this kind of modality of astrology, how it hits your ear. Well, it definitely reinforces the idea that 
also incarnation is a free will choice, I'd say. And a few of the things you said, like you're the only one in the room and a few other things is in a sense, one could say completely in line with Bashar's teachings. But just like you said, in my understanding, the real esoteric teachings of any and all religions and any and all truly mystical orders, they usually talk about the same. So basically what we've been doing now, in a sense, is interviewing about 200 individuals. Not everyone agrees, but those that, from my point of view, are more into this. And interestingly enough, very often also speak of similar, um, let's say, body type experiences and awareness, which I share as well. I'm thinking about Richard Rudd, and we've had a few others. I can't even recollect all of them now, but quite a few. And then they usually, on the, let's say, intellectual, mystic side, just come to very similar conclusions. And my maybe somewhat, how should I say, misplaced hope or something is that finally we can switch our common base understanding of reality to that model just because it checks out more and in a sense, you know, allows for peace and joy and love. And uh, yeah, much less of that separation that we've played out, you know, as much as we could uh, in the last years, let's say. Yeah, beautiful. I, um, I also really resonate with the teaching. Oh, sorry. Did you hear me? I think I left. With the teachings of Bashar and also Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a very big part of my life. You know, in all of their teachings, I, I do feel they're just at the core the same. They're all pointing to who we truly are. Exactly. And that suffering is fundamentally optional. <laughs> you know, it's right. Like, yeah. Exactly. There's that Buddhist and if I may of, ask... Yeah and uh, kindly also mentioned the Buddhist teachings, but you mentioned briefly how you relate that, let's say, to your upbringing. So in a very naive sense, uh, as an outsider in a, in a way, I would ask also what does Orthodox Judaism mean to you? Does this mean, because as I understand, this is also, as many religions, you know, super complex and compartmentalized partially and so on and so forth. If there's anything you would want to share or any maybe base values or something that it's quite Saturnian is obvious, but maybe what you took from it or how experienced that. Cool. Um, well, yeah, it's very Saturnian. It's also very lovely, very beautiful. And one of the most significant elements of my upbringing and my Jewish community was song and prayer. I love prayer. I love singing. Um, I'm a very devotional being and the way that I grew up was with a lot of song. And a lot of the songs are the Tehillim, the Psalms of King David. Um, a lot of the prayers that are prayed every day, uh, you pray a lot in Judaism. And what I would do as a child is I would actually take a lot of these verses and I would make up my own melodies. Um, that sticks with me today. A lot of my songs have these Hebrew verses in them. I still sing these Hebrew songs. There isn't any connection to the dogmatism um, or the adherence of being identified with a Jewish person that thus practices a certain thing. Now that I have a family, it is interesting. I'm, I'm actually teaching Hebrew school to some local kids at the local synagogue, which I think is a, it's really beautiful. Um, you know, but now that I have a family, there is that question, you know, how do I want to share my Judaism with my daughter um, and the Hebrew? And, you know, I'm, I'm bringing in Hebrew every once in a while and I share the blessings and the songs and I'm just going to pay attention to it. It has to be authentic. It has to be natural. And I think there is a lot of space in me 
to be incorporating Judaism from a more um, global-centric-minded place. And one that is also reinterpreted to reflect my own culture. You know, Judaism reflects a culture, or there are many cultures within Judaism, and they've all had influences on me because I've also walked many different sects of Judaism along my journey as a youth. But I am who I am, and I'm finding my own way, and my path includes many different elements from different teachings and just the fruit of my own realization. So I think there's space for integrating the, the practices, and even, you know, Shabbos, Shabbat, the Sabbath. It's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful concept. And I haven't traditionally observed the Sabbath in, a, in many, many years. But there are aspects to it that I'm curious about, you know, bringing it into life. There's something to say about Saturn. There's something to say about knowing how to work with structure and form in a way that allows for what happens within the form to be conducive to spirit, to be conducive to what's really most important here. Well said. I mean, some things that just come to mind automatically. I know that there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there's 22 uh, cards in the Tarot. Um, I think it seems like everything kind of begets everything, but that sounds so wishy-washy and relativistic that at some point um, it can get tricky. Uh, or you know, it's you know, there's very fundamental. Uh, there's qualitative differences between, um, like you're saying, Orthodox Judaism and Buddhism, though there are. Vesica Pisces overlaps, so it's interesting how um, almost much, very much like a, a flower of life or whatever. It's like it all is one kind of circle, but all the circles kind of at various uh, angles of approach overlap in various ways. Um, I've, I grew up Christian, and I've had a lot of, it seems whether it's DMT or astral projections or whatever, even a psychics read me, they're like, oh, you were at the, uh, you were in a scene in a past life and all this stuff, a scene. Uh, it's like, okay. So it seems like there's some things I can't shake, and it seems um, I can very much appreciate the, uh, I bet David was a fucking either bipolar or Gemini, let's be real. Um, the musical kind of poetic um, personalization, I, I think there's many ways to do this. And it's the hard thing I've always wondered is how do you, how does one transmit truth? I mean, for a long time, whether it's a yuga or however one wants to look at this, um, you know, if you do see a burning bush or you you do have an experience, how do you tell that to people without either sounding crazy or, you know, when you translate it, there's always like, uh, you know, lost in translation, like lisps, I guess you could say. So, and then people take, you know, whether it's symbol for literal or take things too seriously and lose the spirit of the law or whatever the thing is, um, humans are kind of fumbling about with uh, the thing that can't be named, it seems. Um, so I very much appreciate kind of your journey. It sounds like you've um, taken the best of it and left all the kind of baggage in the sense uh, of what might keep your mind closed behind. So props on that. Yeah, I mean, even evolutionary astrology is a construct that I've had to work with and kind of, in some ways, let go of. You know, I'm teaching astrology, but I don't actually call my course evolutionary astrology because for me, the foundation of, of my teaching, of my life, my practice, it can't be defined by a particular one system way of living. I, I do have the awareness that along my soul journey, not just in this lifetime, I've walked many different paths and have explored many traditions, many teachers. And in the end, it's like, how do we know what's true other than through our direct experience? And so I'm so mindful and sensitive to, you know, the finger that points to the moon and just wanting to have enough emptiness in my teaching um, where I'm really respecting my lineage and my teacher and all that I've been given. But I'm referencing 
what's become real inside. I'm referencing my own direct experience so that it's authentic. And when teachings are authentic, they're pointing away from the person. They're pointing away from the words for people to have their own realization. You know, and actually there's a really great quote from Jeffrey Wolf Green. It's, you know, when you have knowledge, when you truly know something, there's nothing to believe. And when you have knowledge, it's irrefutable. It doesn't even need to be explained. It doesn't need to be proven. When we're stuck on people believing us or understanding us, it's often because we haven't allowed ourselves to root very deeply into an inner listening to, to see what's true, to see what it is we've actually come to realize or what we really know. I was listening to a talk yesterday from Adya Shanti, who's one of my favorite teachers. Um, he kind of trained in the Zen tradition. He was saying how lucky we are today, you know, because so many souls on this path of spiritual awakening or, you know, realizing however you want to frame it, realizing more of the truth, kind of moving away from the, the mainstream boxes. There are consequences to that. You would get killed for that kind of stuff. Um, many of us have been in prior lifetimes that waking up to reality often had a price, you know, and today it's not as real you know that that's not as much of an issue today um you still might not be understood because there is something deeply individuating no matter what age we're in when it comes to really opening up to the truth behind the illusion behind the veil it's very individuating because it's a very personal process but by no means is it as dangerous literally as it used to be um you know and jim I, I would, I've always, I don't know this personally myself, but I, I have such a resonance with the Essenes and I've always wondered if I was at some point uh, amongst the, in Hebrew, it's the Essenim, if I was amongst the Essenim. So it's kind of cool to hear that you have, you have a connection to that. Well, I'm sure you're aware that uh, the Sasani, so Bashar civilization, the Sasani living on Sasani is also really close to Essenes. And at least the vibe I'd be getting without, you know, knowing about any proven historical reference or anything like that. In terms of vibe, it's obviously all lining up. And yeah, to me, again, it seems like there are always these sects. And I guess all of them have to, let's say, cool qualities and everything is just different. Or all variants are just, you know, differentiations. However, there's usually those that kind of really try to go for the core also thinking about the cathars which i guess are somewhat related here as well that i find you know are the most interesting i mean not to be redundant um but it, it does seem like pink Floyd's dark to them and kind of nails it with the prismatic it seems like light love all this stuff is the one thing and it pops through this material matrix even if it's not even material we've talked before about like it's all mind or it's all spirit and we're just having a quote physical experience and separation as a process or a permission slip i guess you could say um and how uh, you know it reminds me a lot of the book of isaiah where kind of i guess I, i'm not sure if it's considered a new jerusalem situation there but it's like every every color is respected and valued for its individual patterning so red is not green is not blue but at the same time it's it's known to be the effulgence of kind of I mean, in a weird way, of uh, the anthropomorphized Shekinah or something like that, where it's like, look how beautiful everything can be in its diversity and its complexity, and it, it's all good. I mean, you get it with the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve signs. There's all. It seems, I guess, we're kind of getting there in those films that do this. Um, whether <laughs> Raphael, we've had an episode on um, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is an anime 
Um, it has a very cabalistic apotheosis ending. Um, or th there's a movie called La Congress, very similar, kind of more Buddhist, though, in a sense. Um, it seems we're coming to a point where we're kind of getting the cosmic joke more in mass than before. Like you were saying, people before would get it and then they would be put, you know, burned on, at the stake or, you know, whatever, excommunicated or whatever. And it was very hard during the, whether, I don't know if it's astrological or the yugas, like I said, just the, the, the nature of the times, the zeitgeist of those times was such that for, for reasons that I can't grok at this point, um, we were choosing a very difficult lesson, um, separation and, you know, crusading and all sorts of crazy stuff. So uh, it seems at this point, the t we're not there yet, I don't think, clearly. And maybe that's just my stubbornness or something. And Raphael's always kind of pointed out, he's like, and, you know, some people are like, you're there if you want to be, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but it seems collectively we're all starting to kind of pop open uh, in this Aquarius energy right now with this, uh, you know, six planets uh, in Aquarius as we speak with a new moon in Aquarius. It seems we're all kind of kicking up, I mean, uh, to this higher vision of what the arch uh, of what the um, engineering of consciousness could be. And there's probably been a few times, I mean, I don't know about your presuppositions in terms of history. Uh, if you're like a Darwinian thinking we came from, you know, apes and we've fallen into consciousness or we came from Atlantis. It, maybe all of these things are true in a multiversal sense, but uh, it seems there's, you know, whether, you know, at some point language became a thing. That's the whole garden, you know, like name the animals and know, you know, yourself ontologically separate than that. Um, in any event, like there seems to be like kind of big moments, I guess you could say in the film's plot. And it feels like last year and in the coming couple next years probably um, are, very plot twisty, <laughs> almost kind of like uh, Return of the Jedi <laughs> or something, um, where it's like, he thought it was really bad and he lost an arm and it's not that great, but guess what? He's actually a master Jedi in a black outfit now who knows how to fucking call lightsabers to him and, you know, whatever. It's just like, it seems, uh, I guess, I mean, I'm just kind of rambling as Gemini's tend to do, but what is your position on the situation? I mean, it seems like you have a good, whether psychedelics or personal mystical experiences or what, it seems you punctuated the veil enough to be like, this isn't what I thought, and yet we still find ourselves enmeshed in karma and uh, momentum and culture and all these things that hasn't all melted away, you know, yet. So how do you look at the, I mean, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask, but I think you kind of get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, totally. Ah, you know, I was praying this morning and also last night. Um to that ineffable source of all things that I, I can't qualify in an easy name, but that which is one, to reveal all illusion so I can see it, you know? Just whatever's not true in my mind, like let it come to light. And gently if possible, you know, just bring, bring as much gentleness to it and guidance and support for that seeing. And the reason why I bring this up in response to your question is we are in such an evolutionary juncture right now where there is a collective, significant collective shift happening. I don't think the shift is going to happen overnight. Uh, there's going to be a lot of cataclysm and fundamental change on a structural level. We know this. Pluto itself is moving towards the south, towards uh the, the Pluto return of the United States. It's on its own south node, the south node of Pluto. In Capricorn, which, by the way, is um, very closely related to the Yuga cycles, a 26,000-year cycle. Interesting thing to explore. Um, you know, we have this, for the next two years, this Saturn-Uranus square 
and Saturn is ruling this Pluto, this is a lot of change. This is a fundamental change in the status quo and the structural reality that we have established, that we are familiar with. And what's inherently insecure about this is Saturn wants to stay in the condition. It wants to stay in what's known. It wants to feel safe in that. And Uranus is always pushing on, on the wall. It's always kind of trying to get beyond that threshold. You know, I think of Uranus as the nature of reality. What it acts, it's like the intelligence of creation itself. If you're standing beyond time and just looking at time as if it was an object in your hand, it's this recognition that time and space and form is not primary reality. It's not original to existence. It's actually derivative. It's actually a function of our own consciousness. You know, so I think it's the best thing that we can do right now is just continue on our path of realizing that where we get hooked is where time and space gets really dense, right? Like where things are really scary, where we feel really emotionally invested in things is where time and space gets really real, right? It's where the illusion feels very absolute. And I think one of the things that can happen during this time where it, it's very volatile, there's a lot of ideological uh, differences and there's a lot of realizations. There's a lot of disillusionment happening, which is great. But in that process, there runs this great potential of groups of people all around the world forming a very strong identity relative to the unique level of realization that they've achieved or come to that actually creates a lot of separation, a lot of division or a lot of paranoia or a lot of victimization or a lot of fear. And it's like to be having realizations about the nature of reality or the illusions of what we've been shown or the illusions of what the mainstream media or government have told us, like to have these realizations and to not be grabbing them, you know, to not make that what's worth living our, I mean, unless that's our path, because you got to walk your path and everything needs to be played out, right? So there's that. But it needs to be played out and to know when it's time to let it go. It reminds me of that Zen teaching. And you can be sitting in meditation, facing the wall, right? Very boring, <laughs> wearing black, counting your breath. And there can be all these mystical experiences. Kundalini can be flowing through your spine. Angels could appear. You can be having these memories of past lives. And as I understand, the basic Zen teaching is don't get invested in that. Don't get involved because it's just experience. And what we're, what we're awakening to is not a cooler spiritual experience, not remembering our past lives, not having a kundalini awakening. It's remembering who we are. You know, and to me, that's that, that light and love that, that can just infiltrate every level of density, every dimension of reality, because it's not conditioned or limited by any construct. And really coming more and more into that, for, you know, for me, the, the path of forgiveness um, is, is what I would consider to be the most important part of my practice. And what I would always say is probably the most important arsenal or way to be armed, so to speak, if that's the right way to think of it, in the context of great changes, because it allows us to come back to a fundamental stance of truth. You know, when I think about forgiveness, it's like, really working on our minds, really working on our perceptions and realizing, okay, my suffering is born in my thinking. And we know that, you know, we have that experience that that's one of the gift, uh, gifts of entheogenic practices or working with plant medicines, because it's a very direct experience. We can know, okay, 
if I direct my attention towards this, I will suffer. But we can't suppress this content either. It needs to be seen. So disciplining our minds, cultivating a ground of clear thought, clear perception, clear vision. These are the things that are, you know, valuable to me and what I feel is, is most beneficial and helpful. And of course, it's like not to give this advice to people as much as this is work for us to do. For me, this is my calling. And I, I, have, I am of, of the belief and the understanding that our path in life is what it is. Like the, the ego doesn't choose it. Like Ari Moshe isn't choosing his path in life. The Ari Moshe is just a projection of me, right? My path is what it is. It's already been chosen. The script is written and I'm just playing it out and you got to walk it, you know? So it's like, for me, the path is teaching astrology is a part of it. And I find teaching astrology as a natural way for me to bring in these teachings of love, these teachings of forgiveness, helping people to remember that everything is ultimately an ultimate opportunity for realization and healing and thus a returning to the safety and the friendliness of life. And yeah, we all have our path to walk. We have to walk whatever that looks like, even if it's some form of activism or some form of, you know, teaching something or just spending time alone in meditation and not being involved in the world. We have to walk it. We have to see it. We have to play out the karmic path that we have to play out. We can't actually transcend it. We have to meet it and bring consciousness into it. So just wanting that people can feel like there is a way right now. There's a path for each of us and we are exactly where we're meant to be. And there's profound relevancy to each of our lives. Well said. I mean, the thought that's coming to mind is like, I think people, whether through psychedelics or meditation or just gnosis or, you know, whatever, are realizing life is kind of a record. Um, but still, we're here to play the record and go through the groups to hear the song. So avoiding, you know, yeah, yeah. loosely, it's like, don't just smash the record. I mean, ultimately, it doesn't matter, but like, enjoy the record while it's on without overly identifying things. It's, those groups are all there is. Yeah, well said. It's true. It's it's like uh, if you're having a dream and you realize that you're dreaming, but you're still in the dream, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very beautiful paradox that um, there's really no way out, but just kind of exploring it in this present moment and not getting too stuck in, in philosophy or concepts, because it, in the end, we are where we are. And it's just something we have to we have to experience and find out for ourselves. That's what's up. Um, before we take a quick music break, I actually picked a Fleet Fox song I thought you might enjoy um, from their older, like maybe the first EP. It's very kind of on the long lines of what we're talking about. Um, Raphael, was there anything? I mean, I know you kind of <laughs> always like, yeah, that's what it is. And you're never uh, as floored, I guess. I feel like I'm uncovering archaeology. I feel like Indiana Jones being like, this belongs in the fucking museum. Like, I'm always just, like, fascinated by these well, thoughts. it does. Yeah. That's why we put it on a podcast. But generally speaking, you know, this is also, in a sense, podcast series, you could say, like, a survey. And, uh, yeah, I would, you know, just tr trying uh, to make the blatantly obvious apparent. <laughs> <laughs> well said. So, yeah, I've got no particular questions, but we'll just, you know, uh, for John, after... Your music break, I'd say. Welcome back. Good vibes. Yeah, an interesting track for sure. Uh, it's got 
obviously kind of traditional folk instrumentation, but it also has some exoticism about it uh, that seems very kind of postmodern, as Fleet Fox's stuff tends to do. I don't know if you're into them or not, Ari. I am now. Oh yeah, no, I could turn it on some shit. That's, I mean, with a North Node of Midheaven and Taurus, I'm like aesthetics. I get it, going. Just listen, like I don't. You don't have to agree with me. I don't care. I'm a Gemini, but I'm like, I know what's hot, y'all. Like, trust me. Um, so we can kind of go any which way. Um, we kind of got not hung up in the weeds of philosophy too, in a bad way. I'm very glad with it, but um, we kind of basically got in your life story to the point uh, at which uh, you turned on to evolutionary astrology. Um, but you're kind of weaving it well, so don't think I'm hating it all. Uh, it's not like that. Um, have you always played music? Uh, how, is, how has music been? A, you, you were saying that you've been you know, rewriting um, uh, religious texts in your own tongue, so to speak. Um, how did you get into guitar? How did that whole process go on? Yeah. Um, I've always been playing piano. I grew up with a piano. I had a piano teacher when I was six. And I wasn't practicing note reading. And at a certain point, I quit because I wasn't really practicing. But I loved playing. And I always liked playing by ear, like hearing a song and trying to figure out the melody. Like, I think the melody is going up here. It's going down here. And I got really good at that. I just took joy in playing things by ear. So I would, um, once I knew a song, and I knew how to play it, I would play it by memory or by ear, and I wouldn't read the notes. So I never disciplined myself in more of a, a left brain reading capacity, but really developed a strong intuitive connection to the art. But I never thought of that as, you know, meaningful. I just thought of myself as, yeah, I'm not practicing, but oh well. My second piano teacher, I think, actually left or quit because of the same reason. So I didn't really grow up believing that I was particularly musical because as far as I knew, I wasn't practicing. I wasn't doing it right. But my parents, I'm very, very fortunate. My parents held a lot of space for me to play hours of piano. You know, as a child, I was given a lot of freedom. And especially when no one was home, I would often just sit at the piano and play. And it was a way of emotional catharsis, you know, really strong emotions and needing to process it, needing to feel it. And I remember just getting lost in, in creating melodies and, and wanting to be able to transcend, wanting to be able to get to a point with the playing where I can express through my fingers the energy that's wanting to move through. You know? And so I would spend a lot of time listening to different music, listening to different techniques and practices and trying to get it so that I can be able to ride on that wave. By the way, I just saw the movie Soul. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, my yeah. God. Hits it on I, a lot of fronts. <laughs> completely. Yeah, I cried so hard during that movie. It really touched me deeply. Really touched me deeply. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, at some point I picked up guitar. I think my father had a guitar. My mother had a guitar in the house. One of them did. And um, I just began learning it. Learned chords, maybe from the internet. Um, learned how to read tabs so I can learn some songs, some chords. And it's an easier thing to, to carry around. You know, as a high school student, I would go on different Jewish youth retreats and things like that. And I actually don't know if I took guitar with me on those retreats, but people would play guitar. And as I grew, it, guitar was a more accessible thing to share. And yeah, guitar and piano just sort of became circumstantially the instruments that I learned to play. I, I've learned to play several other and I dabble. And to me, and everything's an instrument. 
you know, everything is basically a vehicle that can be used for expression. Um, I have a deep interest in continuing to explore that. And there are certain sounds, like in that sound, in that song we just heard, that more um, monotone sound. It's like a drone, more almost like a yeah, sitar, yeah. almost, but not at all. It sounded almost like someone was playing, like let's just say, almost like a dobro type. Yeah, uh, like yeah. lap steel guitar thing with like very little fretting going on, kind of just you know, like when you're not pressing down on the fret, but somehow they extended it like mad. Yeah, that kind of stuff really, I I really resonate with that kind of music. So yeah, just along my journey, it's just been there. You know, one of the most pivotal moments in my life journey. I haven't shared this publicly, so this is great. <laughs> I don't think I have. One of the most pivotal moments on my life journey where I realized the importance of music on my path was, I'll start with this, in 2007, maybe, I had a dream where uh, one of my first teachers, Adam Ginsberg, um, he said to me, when Uranus squares your Mercury, you will have sex for learning purposes. And uh, as it goes, Uranus was squaring my Mercury in the year of 2011. And it was squaring it three times, I think 2010, 2011. And I'm pretty sure it was during the last square. I taught one of my first classes. I was in Brooklyn, New York. It was a very uh, small class. And just after the class, uh, one of the participants said, here, I made this for you and gave me a vial of DMT. <laughs> Team and... <I'm> home <laughs> I say ground score. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the other participant, one of the other participants says, um, oh, no, no, wait, wait, that day, I'm mixing up the facts, that same day, I think, or the day before, I gave a reading to a couple in New Jersey, and they gifted me some LSD that they manufactured. So I had that LSD in my wallet. It actually gets more bizarre because I had some really dear yogic friends that I would spend a lot of time with in New Jersey whenever I was there who just got back from Peru. And they got back from Peru sitting with ayahuasca and they told me, Ari, you, I really feel like you need to sit with this medicine. And that was all, this is all the same week. And that same week also I had a friend that was traveling cross country and he had some marijuana. He didn't want to travel with it. So he gave it to me. And mind you, I, I was never one to work with any substances. I grew up very straight. Um, it was never a yeah, part of like my life. It sounded like you were a good Jewish boy. Uh, it like you were doing the straight and narrow. And I'm not against that, but you haven't really alluded to psychedelics until this point. So uh, this is fine. Absolutely, so going. yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I like to say I never, I never, you know, I lost my virginity in my 20s. In my early 20s, I smoked pot for the first time at that, that same time, same year. Um, before then, there, there wasn't a lot of the thing that you are supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to do in a Western country, <laughs> you know, when you're coming of age in high school. That was not a part of my world. And I had no interest in it either. But when I began to blossom spiritually, it was almost a destiny that this would come to me. Again, it's a part of the template. It's like what comes, comes. It's a part of it. So I never ate LSD by that time. In 2007, I must have been 23, 24, something like that. And so um, long and very interesting story short, um, I, ate, I ate this LSD with these two individuals, who I neither of whom I knew very well. I knew both of them prior to that particular class, but 
um, didn't know them very well. And what ensued was a very powerful journey and a powerful um, awakening. And um, I'll just tune into a moment to see how much of it to share. It was connecting with the archetypal masculine feminine energies and sort of the collective imprint of the masculine playing out this destructive, uh, selfish energy of taking and pilgrimaging um, and then running away. And it's almost like I was able to see that being played out, not just by me, not just seeing how I was carrying that archetype or that distortion of the archetype, but just seeing the, the patterning of that, like the, how, that how that has fractaled um, for centuries or more. Um, and that just sort of really getting a strong archetypal seeing of this imprint and, and seeing it on all the dimensions, right? It's like how we are in relationship to the earth, um, how society has treated women, how we treat the feminine in general, within and without. It was just a really powerful realization to that where I was actually filled with this immense grief, feeling like I couldn't trust. There's, there's you know, one moment, and, and with this one individual, we are in this flow um, of really being together in this way where it was just the moment. But in the, in the present moment, I would experience pure desire and then I would experience pure resistance, right? wanting to be close and wanting to separate. And there was a point where I was like, I got to go. I got to just, you know, go out into the hallway. And long story short, <laughs> we were at my friend's apartment and my friend actually left. So it was just me and this other individual. I had no clue if she had any roommates. I'm out there naked on the floor. Her roommate walks out and sees me. And then my friend manages to, you know, act as if I'm drunk and brings me back into the room. And um, there was just, I was causing, there was a snake in the room. I was convinced that I was going to take the snake out and kill the snake. I was convinced that I was going to have to, not that I needed to, but that I was going to accidentally hurt or kill the snake because of the understanding of its energy. That just by looking at it, the intensity, there was something bad that was going to happen. Um, I was simultaneously aware of, of somewhat of the, the delusion of that thinking, but the, the metaphor of there being a snake in the room, <laughs> in a tank, of course, while I was going through this deep process. And at a certain point, I locked eyes with that snake. And I was met with this profound energy of death. And I think that's possibly in part what catalyzed this, this really deep process of realizing that the amount of grief uh, and shame and sorrow that I was carrying um, was beyond I knew what to do with. You know, it's like, how, how can I, what do I do with that, right? I wanted to throw my computer out of the window. The technology, all this intellectual stuff, all of it felt like a big mistake, a big missing of the foundation of the, the love, the foundation of our life, this way in which we've separated from unity, from togetherness, from care, from respect, and have dissociated into the mind. I have, I have a Sun-Uranus conjunction in the third house. So on the south node. So in I was going to ask you about know, that at some point, how you like, uh, because your chart's pretty ratchet, if I do say myself. I was like, holy shit, because right now the south node and your sun is, I mean, everything, you might be going through an interesting time right now. Let's <laughs> just put that more than most. But anyway, I didn't mean to cut you <laughs> off. The, uh, and even the fact that you're coming from Jewish kind of heritage, 
I mean, serpents aren't the favorite animal of the book, obviously. So, right, right. Um, a whole lot of levels here. But anyway, keep going with that story. Exactly. I'm trying. I'm having that Uranian experience. I'm trying to kind of translate it, but you're you're getting it. It's, there are a lot of levels here, and it's always you know Uranus is like the higher mind. Then we 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 kind of translate it into words that we can articulate through the Mercury function that we can understand and interpret through Jupiter. So that's what I'm trying to do. But it, you know, when you have these experiences, it's sort of all there. The the languaging isn't necessarily complete. But yeah, there's so much conditioning around the snake. There's so much conditioning around sexuality and the misuse of that snake, sexuality, sin, right? At the same time, Shakti, life force, awakening, Kundalini. So there, there are all these dimensions that are emerging. And also, you know, Jeffrey Wolf Green actually has a beautiful teaching that um, he, he has his own chakra correlations, and there are many. His is the root chakra corresponds to Saturn, Uranus, and Pluto. And there's three different layers of the root chakra. Saturn is sort of the most base. It's literally, you know, the root. It's the foundation's basic security. It's the spine itself. And then Uranus is what breaks up the structure. It breaks up the crystallized patterns in consciousness that then allows the kundalini energy to flow freely. And so the kundalini energy moves when we kind of pass that Uranian dimension where the, the structural reality of our consciousness is broken through. And that allows the kundalini to move up the spine to the crown, crown being Neptune, you know, or to the third eye rather. So th there is a lot of root chakra stuff going on. But when we start delving into kundalini world, but we haven't sort of done the Saturn world, right? When we're starting to open up that energy, but we actually haven't gotten stable. We haven't really done the Saturn healing work, which is learning how to live, I would use the word, in alignment, right? Not, not to make a sort of religious or ethical belief around that, but alignment is being in balance with time and space. So you're, you know, you're not running through red lights because of some sort of radical realization that it's all an illusion. There's a certain way of integrating in alignment that allows us to harmonize with the illusion, simultaneously understanding that it's necessary. There's a middle way in that. There's a lot of wisdom and beauty in that. So I wasn't entirely stabilized in the Saturn dimension, which is why I walked out of the room naked, um, which is why I wanted to throw out the computer. So before I threw out the computer, I you know, just kind of went through this process and uh, I had this intuition to maybe play some music. So maybe the computer's good for now because there's a lot of music on the computer. And I turn on the computer and of course it's 3.33 a.m. You know, and that, that right there, it was, that, that softened my heart. That to me reminded me that there's something happening here. There's a greater plan. It was like a little bit of a message saying, this has purpose, there's relevance here. So I flew with that and went went to my player and the first random song that came up was a song from this uh this bajan group um arjun and the guardians i think was the name of the band and it was a song about radha and krishna it goes like radha and krishna went into the forest and i forgot the rest of the words but it's like you know Radha being enamored, Krishna saying, I am always with you, I am inside of you. And like these, the whole, um, the whole um, Rasa Lila, 
the, the, the love story of, of Radha and Krishna, which is actually really erotic and also deeply metaphorical for true union, true marriage. And so I was listening to that song and the, the message that came to me, I'm just now remembering why I'm telling the story, the guidance that came to me was, I just have to live as beautifully and gracefully as I possibly can. And that's what I got. And it's like, just sing as much as you can. That's like, that's the only answer. Live gracefully, live beautifully. This was sort of like uh, 2.0, the next level of realization after I had that realization during my nodal return when I was 18, 19, where I realized I needed to dance and just stop asking all these questions and have experience. This sort of took me to a new dimension of it's, it's about really giving myself to grace and beauty. Now, the story gets even more interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of healing and um, realization that occurred to that experience for me and, and my friend that I was with. I go back to New Jersey <laughs> um, to my yogic friends who just came back from, from Peru. Um, spent some time with them. I, I go to my parents' home. And I go to a room and I think the next day I create a little ceremony for myself to, to smoke some marijuana. And I've never done that before. I've never like sat with marijuana and smoked, you know, but I was like, there's so much content. I just knew I needed to use the stuff that I've been given and, and just continue to heal, continue to look at whatever needs to be seen. There's a lot of psychic content that was kind of released. Um, I, I do appreciate that. your willingness and gutsness. Not everyone. I mean, I, the way you're doing it is probably the best way to do it in terms of uh, pure intentionality. Let's put it that way. I mean, I'm sure it's fine for people to pass a doobie at a concert or whatever, but people in the West tend to um, bastardize just through – it's tricky because it's all good. It's whatever, but, you know, there's lessons in everything. But I think we've commodified everything so much that, like, you know – you're the what I'm hearing is like I you're not when you're not you're not treading always in the theme park but you've gotten an all day pass and now you're gonna go check out the roller coasters and that's very different than saying I expect to be on a roller coaster every day or whatever so uh, good on you but keep going I didn't mean to interrupt you yeah no good point I, I've had very few experiences that have been casual in their nature I remember once when I was probably 21 22 and I was sort of new to marijuana and went to a maybe a Beltane party and I smoked and I. I was in a bonfire, typical young, naive kind of expression. I was saying out loud, wow, it's so cool, everyone. It's like so different inside than it is outside. <laughs> My friend told me later that when I was doing that, he was like, this guy is so annoying. <laughs> you know, when you smoke for the first time and it's everything so interesting and you know, there are stories we well, can all tell I, about that. That's, that's my, I mean, I, that's the point. If culture, that's the hierophant in the sense of an ossification of uh, joy. I mean, I'm not going to hate on that person, but it's like, let them experience it. There's no right, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, if you if you just say you're not at the altar just right and look at you, um, if it's very Snape kind of like energy from Harry Potter, um, that really squashes the situation. I guess it serves a function, but I mean, what are you going to do? Haters going to hate, I guess they say. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't being facetious about it. He's my friend. I think he was just saying uh, that bothered him. <laughs> but anyway, um, so coming back to that day, see, so yeah, I, I smoked marijuana 
And I had the realization of, wow, there's a lot of sexual energy. Mind you, I grew up very repressed, a lot of rules, a lot of confusion and shame around my sexuality. So I prayed. I said, all right, creator, send me a woman who loves you as much as I do or more, whose, whose desire to know you, right, is as strong as mine or more, with whom I can express the sexual energy with. Where's my support? Trust... <laughs> support, yeah, yeah, very good. And I didn't trust it. I didn't trust myself. So that night, my yogic friends, who were also, um, they used to host, um, what was it, psychedelic trance? Yeah, I think psychedelic trance, you know, side trance parties. Um, I think that's the right word. Yeah, it is. And, and I went to the, one of their other parties in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, um, you know, maybe seven years prior. Actually, during that time, I, I, I led a little healing circle because I was learning Reiki at that time or something like that. And I saw this woman with blonde hair that I was really attracted to. Anyway, I, the second party, it's 2011, just had all these really powerful experiences. And that night, I'm at that party. And this is, I think, a day or two after the, the LSD experience. And the whole time I'm dancing, there is this woman with blonde hair dancing next to me. And it's clear, she's intentionally dancing next to me. And I was deeply, you know, I guess honored, you know, flattered. Like there's a, this woman's really wanting to be close to me. And afterwards we sit down together and she says, yeah, my guys were telling me to, to be close to you. I'm like, okay, this is, this is cool. I like this person. <laughs> And we're talking and she actually says, were you at this party seven years ago? And yeah, it's that same woman that I oh, remember sure. seeing. And anyway, so we got into this little journey together. Um, and what's meaningful about this relationship is um, she said there's a, there's a shaman from, who does work. He lives in Peru. He's coming to New York State. And there's, a, there's an ayahuasca ceremony happening in a couple weeks. Um, would you like to attend? And I was a clear yes, clear yes. I knew it's exactly what I needed to do. And so she took me to my first ceremony. And it was in that ceremony <clears throat> where I remember I'm sitting with a medicine and I don't know what to do. Like, what do I count my breath? Do I do mantra? Like, what do I do? <laughs> You know, it was sort of like the, the highly intellectual self didn't know how to be in relationship to a ceremony container. And this is my, that was my first time really being in a facilitated container um, led with prayer, with intention. Beyond that little time, I did that with myself, with, with marijuana. And um, at a certain point, the, the shaman asked me to sing. So I sang a song. I sing a, a cheesy rainbow song. Well, it's not cheesy, it's sweet, but it's, it's a rainbow song. It's, um, I've, I've known it. I used to go to rainbow gatherings, and this is where I learned it. We are opening up in sweet surrender to the luminous love light of the one. We are opening. We are opening. Then there's a line, we are rising up like a phoenix from the fire. Brothers and sisters, spread your wings and fly higher. So I'm singing that and I purge, I puke. 
right? Purging is the word you use when you when you release, when you get well, when you release stuff during medicine ceremony. And while I'm singing, and then I just continued singing. And I had the thought, oh, singing means I heal. When I sing and I give myself to beauty, to grace, I heal. And in, in, the, in the next two ayahuasca ceremonies I sat and with someone else, in, it, it was in North Carolina, the same thing would happen. I would only purge when I would sing. And for a while I thought that I, that I had to sing in order to purge. Um, <clears throat> what ayahuasca has taught me, especially in those early ceremonies, is it's about grace, it's about beauty. And giving myself to a state of grace, like opening my whole being to the moment, to beauty. And it's actually a principle of faith. It's actually a principle of, even if there's discomfort, there can be a lot of nausea and discomfort um, with ayahuasca, physical, emotional. There's a teaching that I began hearing and, and really getting, which is to relax into it, to find a state of, of peace and grace in it. And that actually there's a really delicate fine line between uh, pleasure and pain. Right? It's like the resistance of sensation is painful, but actually discomfort can itself be its own really, really unique form of, of pleasure in, in a very sweet and bitter, dark way. To feel so much pain in the heart, in the mind, in the body, but to not be in resistance to it. It's really coming to terms with the present moment and not running from it. It, it's a very sweet, very tender place to be. And I saw that that was where I needed to work. That's where my path is. And over time, I've continued to sit in ceremony, sitting with medicine. And I did eventually come to the point of realizing that I wouldn't have to sing to purge, that actually purging can happen in all kinds of moments. And then many ceremonies, in fact, at this point, in most ceremonies, I don't purge. Um, there's a thing about working with medicine, any medicine, to have no concept of what it's supposed to look like, uh, no constructs. So every every ceremony is different, but um, those original ones were really, really setting a foundation for some deeper realizations. <clears throat> there was a point um, about a year and a half later or so, or yeah, a year or so later, I was living back in North, I was living in North Carolina. I've, I've lived there at different phases. Um, lived there for 2012. And I had the prayer to sit with the medicine by myself because I've sat in several ceremonies and I really felt that I wanted to access a deeper quiet. Um, there's profundity in a group container because we're all sharing the same journey. And so we're all kind of holding the same pieces on that uranium level that can't be quite explained, but it's like all simultaneous. Um, and there's deep, deep healing that happens in that container. But I just felt that I wanted to go into some deeper place with voice and sound on my own, you know, to sing more. In a lot of the containers, you're not really singing all the time. Maybe the shaman's singing and you might be asked to sing. But I really felt that there was a path for me to sing more. So I, I just, you know, put it out there. And I had this dream one night <clears throat> where I went to... In Asheville, it's called the Dobra Tea. It's in, a, it's in several places actually all over the world, but the Dobra Tea House, the really cool tea house. In the gym, I go to the tea house and I ask the server 
for tea. And actually, the, the, the server says, I'm going to get you some special tea. And there's a man standing to my left. She goes to get the tea, and a black snake comes down and enters the crown of this man. I wake up from the dream, and ayahuasca is awake in me, present in me. And I realize I don't need to drink the medicine. I was so humbled, so humbled to learn, to realize that it's inside. And that what ayahuasca is teaching, as all great teachers are teaching, is that it's all inside. That we can access these dimensions of being inside. It's all here. Because this was accessing itself, it was happening without drinking any medicine. So I just let go of that idea of drinking medicine by myself. And I just really redevoted myself to the inner work. And then, of course, as it goes, that next day, a friend was visiting. This friend makes medicine um, in one of the islands. And he came to visit me, and he sold me a bottle of medicine. So now I have a whole bunch of medicine. And that set a new phase of experience for me, where I began working with medicine by myself. Over a few months, I sat in several ceremonies by myself, and that was very profound. I had this one experience of realizing I don't need women. It's all inside of me. And then I had this immediate internal feedback, which is, yeah, now start to see every woman as me, as ayahuasca. See, see what you're seeing inside, outside as well. Right? See the goddess, see the, the completion to what you are not just as an insight thing, but see it as everywhere and everything and everyone. And I saw that that was like a new level for me, kind of how I karmically have walked this path of not just religion or orthodoxy, but maybe more monastic or, you know, kind of living away from the world, secluding, being more intellectually oriented and not necessarily a family or relationship kind of person. And I was seeing, oh, this is a real calling to... To not, to not keep my spirituality as a, as a self-protected inner thing alone. If it's truly inner, then it must also be outer. It's calling for a deep, a deep integration, a deep wisdom. So, yeah, I mean, to, I've, probably, I've, I've certainly sat in well over 100 ceremonies with this medicine. And I think it's kind of funny because, again, I've never walked, you know, I've never really been a big... Um, entheogenic person i didn't i haven't worked a lot of drugs i never experimented as a youth i started later but i i've probably worked with you know, some of these medicines um more than most people that i know and it's just been a natural destiny and a part of my own spiritual path that's what's up uh i have yet to do ayahuasca um like i was saying back in 2011 i lived in honolulu for two years and got baptized in the pacific on easter and was doing as a double Gemini, I've had like really on fire moments for spirituality, and then other times where I'm like very nihilistic or whatever. Like, what the fuck is this? I'm trapped in the Black Iron Prison. Um, and after coming back from those islands, my friend, like uh, you, were gifted me some DMT. It's the only way I've ever found it. But uh, basically, smoked it, blasted through my crown chakra, talked to Egyptian deities, had a Kundalini activation. But like when I was coming down, I had actually ripped off all my clothes, reverse Garden of Eden style, kind of like what you were talking about. So I kind of understand the naked, like weirdness, high weirdness of psychedelics. And I was sitting there naked in my room at like three in the morning, like having just, you know, climbed Mount Everest, not expecting any of that stuff. Cause I just, I mean, I'd heard Terrence McKenna, but like I would thought it would be like, you know, mushrooms or, you know, something very 
not what it was. Like this was like, you know, popping out of the matrix or whatever. And um, I remember like the idea and it was weird because it was like, God looks at me as perfect. Like, and I, I remember it's funny that you're talking about the root chakra being like kind of Uranian and Plutonian and Saturnian. Cause I remember when I was sitting there naked in my room, looking up in the sky, it was like this huge red ore, like, I mean, the size of the ceiling in my mind's eye or whatever, but kind of root chakra kind of uncloggedness. And I was like, you are secure. You can't get out of the security kind of vibes. A week later, of course, I'm like, you know, raving about this shit, do it again and get cock blocked out of Valhalla by a mantid being saying I'm not supposed to be there or whatever's going on. So um, it's been interesting. I've never done ayahuasca. Raphael has. It seems like something that I should do at some point, but um, it just hasn't. It's it's not something you just do at a party kind of thing, obviously, you know. So uh, Raphael, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on his, uh, not only his overall arc, um, story arc, but uh, ceremonying alone. I mean, I tend to do psychedelics alone. Um, I've found, I you know, picking. I don't want to get hyper woo, but it's like I tend to like hear people's thoughts and weird stuff happens when I'm in a group on psychedelics. It gets very uh, confusing. Is a nice way to put it. Uh, it's not negative, but it's just like very enmeshed psychically with other people's kind of reality tunnels, um, inner reality tunnels. Um, but anyway, I digress. Raphael, what were your thoughts on any of that um, technical or dream coat kind of storylining well as usual it's unique for each and every one to me and i have never done this alone um though i'm totally up for it or at the very least choosing your own group of course there's a whole lot of enmeshment at the same time there's a whole lot of argument you know for lineage and really well-trained teachers and so on but of course ultimately if you really know anyhow that you're always alone in your own room then probably you can also do it alone, you know, and not have any issues. Um, yeah, that sounds like a lot, but to me, it just sounds like quite logical, honestly. I have a somewhat similar story in terms of being introduced to many of these things in a sense rather late, but then it just becomes a, a matter of exploring. And especially, I like the way you put it, if at some point you have built up this, let's say, basic Saturnian security, both you Ari and also Jim mentioned it now in a sense, but once that's really online, you have a completely different platform platform from which to experience anything, including altered states of consciousness. And that just, in my experience so far, changes the game quite a bit. And then you can, in a sense, if you want to also, let's just say, be much more flexible and not so dogmatic about, you know, how to do it, only do it with the group, only do it with the shaman, this and that. But of course, that discernment and self-honesty is up to each and every one. Well said. <clears throat> you know, it's also really <clears throat> natural that along our journey, there are phases for everything. And I think whenever we find ourselves becoming so identified with this is my path, this is what it looks like, we can get addicted to a medicine. We can get addicted to a teacher. And I've gone through phases in this arc where it was very, very clear for me, actually, I would say probably the majority of my ceremonies have been a very, very low dose. In the beginning, it was like intense, high doses. Then it became very important for me that I was taking practically a microdose, more than a microdose, but pretty small. Because I found that the work for me was integration, being able to function, being able to coordinate, being able to move around being able to function and, and actually integrate the teachings. So there's a way to work with medicines and really all paths where we're staying connected to our own agency. 
perfectly well put. There and we also, go. Uh, yes, please go ahead. Yeah. Right. I think my finger got off the little button. Just a way we're in all paths that we're staying connected to our agency and not just looking for some kind of experience to do something for us. That's the thing. It's like nothing wakes us up. We act, it, it's, it's this beautiful journey between the inner and the outer. And these teachers, they come and grace happens. But at the same time, if we're holding the stance of wanting something to happen for us, we're not doing our work. You know, there's a very active co-creative element to the journey and um yeah i think and that that is very much what you're saying it's like when we're grounded in that i know how to hold myself i'm grounded in that saturn dimension i know what my intentions are i know why i'm here then we can make choices and we can discern how much how to create the space i always feel like the every everything is really determined by uh intention and dosage that's really it Amen to that. I'm not one for her. I mean, I'm not eating like 10 hits of acid kind of guy. I mean, I think the most I ever did was two hits. And I was like, that is a lot. Um, microdosing more like what you're saying. It's not microdosing as in I couldn't feel the effects, but um, minimal to, you know, normal dosing seems about right for where I'm at because it isn't in a sense. Uh, I totally hear, especially as a Gemini, the phenomenological kind of excitement and novelty of things. Um, can distract one from um, well, it's tricky. It's both in it, the purity of the intention, but at the same time, it's all good. It's okay. You you know the road of excess leads to the path of wisdom, kind of thing. So it's like, yeah, if you if, uh, if you go crazy, um, you'll learn something. You know, or you know, go balls to the walls or whatever. You'll learn something that you wouldn't have otherwise, but maybe you don't want to always repeat that. Um, and it kind of seems in a weird way, you know. Uh, Moses going up to uh, Mount Sinai or whatever, it's like he had to do his trip um, and he didn't ask others to necessarily go on that and maybe they couldn't even. So I can very much appreciate the uh, solo shaman thing. It's interesting because I think at some point maybe, um, and maybe this is just a presupposition that I'm incorrect with, but like I imagine reality is going to keep getting more and more psychedelic to the point where like they, the medicines might not even matter ultimately, where it's like kind of a Terrence McKenna. In that sense, one could say it's just good to be prepared. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely water wings. Uh, you learn how to not drown in a tsunami of weird. Um, so, but in, in a weird way, I think, uh, I mean, and maybe this is an idealism, but it's like, I don't think God gives us more than we can handle, even if it's ourselves in a higher dimension, whatever, whatever. Um, I think, you know, what needs to occur happens kind of like you were saying like the script is written and it's funny that you put it that way because i think bashar says something to that effect with Raphael can extrapolate upon more um but i've always had this weird intuition i used to say it in high school when i was just getting into weed and stuff i'd be like life's already happened we just have to like experience it like and that sounds so fatalistic but it didn't really irk me uh and then of course when you get older you're like i want to do what i want to do and it's like the ego mind becoming more and more developed but anyway um Raphael, was there some kind of uh, we've talked about before, kind of like a projector screen idea that Bashar has uh, elucidated. Well, that was the lens idea about the personality construct. And otherwise, it's about the idea that you decide beforehand what kind of hallway you're going to walk down, with how you, whether you walk, run, cry or laugh during that, or run in circles, is completely up to you. And of course, especially then, it's difficult to talk about these things uh, if one does not have a certain level of awareness because it includes like concepts of time and so on because from a certain perspective i can well say everything already happened and i've had these visions in a sense as well just as if this life now is just like you're reviewing a life from a higher self perspective 
of course why because for the higher self there actually is no linear time anyways you know and if you bring in these things then i think where the humor really starts to kick in for me at least so yeah ultimately it's a joy and especially if you consider yourself through whatever method to either let's say be in control through your own higher self and or just trust your own higher self then it can actually be not such a bad thing to say that certain things already have been decided in a sense so yeah i think the issue usually occurs if you start to project something and you make a split within yourself and then you know you run into all kinds of issues as long as you remember that just as ari said initially you're the only one in your room ultimately i think it's just a much more relaxed journey in a sense seems attitude goes a long way right attitude i mean like you're saying how you go through the hallway is uh, your responsibility but you're going to be going through the hallway and maybe certain doors will open at certain times kind of style um i might just ask one or two more questions i know you have a life to live and um i Rafael probably wants to get to bed sooner than that but um how has you, you were kind of alluding to being a father now um and how that's kind of changed you um we'll just fast forward and say you know after all these journeys you were living in a car at one point then you've got hitched it seems and have had a child what's been going on in your life and how have you enjoyed the ride thusly all right well it's a whole new so sagittarius the journey Sagittarius can look many ways. You can be traveling, living in a van. I, I outfitted a van, like serious outfitting, sink, um, lights, battery, solar panels. I can, you know, boil oh, water, water, make eggs. Yeah, totally did I, my own composting toilet. It was a real, real joy and lived in that solidly, including the build process for a year and a half, two years or so. And me and my friend got pregnant and this is where the life journey took me. And of course, this is a part of it. This was intimated in dreams prior to it happening, but I could have never predicted. And so I'm living right now uh, in Sonoma, California. And it's just this journey. Like now I'm here. This is what's happening. This is where the growth is. This is where the healing is. This is where the remembering is. The thing that's most significant for me along this journey, and it was a significant adjustment <clears throat> to not being nomadic, right? To being in one spot. It's been pushing me more into becoming self-aware of where my energy was diffusive, where I wasn't um, clean and contained in the central channel. Because right now, the, the need to earn money, support my family, and to be very intentional with what I'm doing with my energy so that I'm nourishing and nurturing what's of most important in essence. So my own spiritual practice, I feel, has significantly deepened an understanding of where my energy is, what I'm putting my energy into, what's most important, streamlining, um, really claiming confidence in myself as a teacher. I've always had a resistance to stepping forward in a big way, right? So you mentioned I worked with Kaipacha. Other people who have done big things have brought me into their world to teach with them. There are many examples of that. But I've never created my own platform to express the unique flavor of my own realization to honor that I have my own thing. I am my own thing. But I needed to. So I've done a lot of inner work to just kind of get over that. And right now I'm currently teaching my first course. <clears throat> it's the Your thumb might have slipped. 
it's the heart. I'm teaching my first course right now. It's a heart and soul centered astrology essentials course for total beginners. I have 30 students and it's an 11 week course. I'm going to be teaching part two chart interpretation course in a few months from now. And I'm building a platform, you know, and this is supporting my family and it's a great opportunity for me to be teaching and, you know, bringing in all of all this stuff that we're talking about. And this has been the most fun interview I've ever had ever. Um, all these elements, this is a part of what's real for me. You know, so I get to bring it in as I teach and draw upon the, the wealth of life experience that has shaped my ongoing journey. If I didn't have a family, I wouldn't have been pushed into grounding on this level. You know, I feel like I'm building a foundation to really do my work in the world. And truly, my dream is to get this astrology thing going, you know, create the evergreen content, keep on hosting these courses every year, you know, continue doing sessions, um, but focus full time on music. You know, so I can just focus on creating beautiful albums, sharing music, doing ceremony, concerts, collaborating with other musicians, continuing to work on my voice, continuing to work on my technique. You know, I don't consider my capacities as a singer to be particularly great, but I love singing. And I love taking time to figure out harmonies and to cultivate more, more space in my voice and really finding out how I can use it as an instrument. Song, music, prayer, ceremony, you know, and that's where my, my deepest calling is. <clears throat> so I feel like I'm setting a foundation right now, which will provide financial stability and allow me to be teaching and doing meaningful work in the world so I can deepen my, my work in the musical world. And um, that's just what I see happening. This, this whole thing came to me. Um, my partner, Michelle, came to me in a dream. And this is, we weren't dating. We weren't even, you know, she was someone that I hardly knew, met a few times. She came to me in a dream and she said, I hope you will devote music as your life path. This is when I was sleeping in Sedona. And this was a good, I don't know, year, year and a half before me and her conceived. So there's, there's something about music. And this whole story that I shared with medicine and ayahuasca, it started with music. Um, this medicine path has brought out music. It's brought me more into an understanding and embodiment of song. And this family path is doing the same thing. And I receive songs in my dreams. Um, a lot of my songs have just been given to me in dreams. Um, I had a dream just after Ella was born, uh, where it was I was I went to a concert and the song that they were playing was, "I'm so glad to be your family. I'm so glad to be your dad." Sweetest, cutest song. And I'm finding myself writing songs now that are a little bit of a different quality. Um, songs that are about forgiveness and love and togetherness. And, um, you know, my songs are always about truth. They're always about these universal aspects. But I find there's more of a, there's something that I'm accessing in myself as I'm walking this path of healing and forgiveness and caring. Um, you know, my commitment to family is one where we're, where I understand that through this path, there's a deepening of love and healing and care for all of us. And I do feel like I'm a recovering spiritual monk. You know, it's like my soul path has not been to stick around, be a part of a family. I've always been moving. 
So there's something for me in bringing up the sweetness and the devotion um, and like the blossoming journey of realization in the context of family and yeah, singing with my daughter is super cool. She's 13 months actually. And she has good rhythm. I can tell she has really good rhythm and she she'll sing and she'll make some sounds when I'm singing and if I'm shaking the rattle, she'll shake the rattle. And so yeah, it's all a joy. I love making food. I love nourishing people. I look forward to moving on land and having people come over. I look forward to getting to sit and drink with you or both of you. I mean, just the opportunity to have a solid place. I had a dream once. Actually, I was sitting as a guest in a friend's house um, where I was building up my part of my van in his house when I was a guest. And I was told, let yourself be a guest now, for in the future, you will be a host to many, something like that. And the honor, the gift, the joy that I get to have as I cultivate ground and stability, I get to have a place that I cultivate as a loving, caring place and people get to be here. So that's something that I'm just looking forward to as I continue down, oh, I'm getting cold, got to put a jacket on. <clears throat> as I continue down this family path, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an honor and it's, it's a path of realization that keeps on revealing itself. Like just literally just cooking dinner last night, it was like, wow, what an honor. You know, and if I get to just live my life loving, doing the work that I love to do, making music, that's it. I and mean, that's like, that's really all I want. That's beautiful. Uh, I'm glad you're kind of hitting your stride. It's, uh, it's in, I mean, I'm looking at your chart. You do have third house, um, Scorpio moon. So of course you're going to be getting these dreams all the time. I'm like, geez, you get a lot of dream, <laughs> you know, guidance. Um, so yeah, it sounds like you, that's uh, more than Neptune actually. Oh, I'm not totally looking at it. Uh, cool. I'm sure you could speak about it more better than I can. Um, but my bottom line is, uh, even that, uh, dream with the little adage, but being like, you know, you were a good guest and I'll be a good host. Um, we're blessed to be a blessing. I mean, that's the whole fucking point, right? So it sounds like your uh, magical mystery tour, and it doesn't mean like it's over forever, but I, I totally can resonate with the uh, kind of, um, you know, all right, like settle down, create four corners, find stability. Um, but it can still be fun. I mean, as your North Red will allude to, it's like this is about, you know, having fun while you whistling while you work, you know. So uh, it sounds like you're kind of kicking ass, taking names in a good place. I know life isn't perfect, but it's beautiful, as Roberto Benigni would uh, suggest in his Oscar award-winning film. Life is beautiful, and it's ups and downs, left and right, and I guess it's the funniest, craziest story we could conjure, because here we are in it, uh, in an Alan Wattsian sense, kind of just like, wow, this is this is entertaining, um, in, a, in a soul level. So uh, I guess um, we could start wrapping it up. I know you said you were getting cold. You probably do have things to get to. Um, I, I do hope our paths cross at some uh, point because you are cool, uh, definitely Team Rabbit Hole approved. And um, we're going to put your links in the comments or whatever. You know, uh, the links will be included in this so people can reach out for readings. I saw you were doing um, the 12 houses and kind of going through each of the houses. That'll be fascinating. I'd love to see your approach on that. Um, but yeah, you're a great astrologer. You're a cool guy, great musician. Obviously loving uh, the child that you've brought in. So you're going to be a good dad, I'm sure. Were there any kind of um, thoughts that you wanted to say that you haven't or any kind of parting sentiments? Yeah, I mean, just such a joy to be with both of you. Really, really appreciate you both. And thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
that's kind of the goal out here. I mean, like I said, <laughs> Bart Simpson did a treehouse. That's how I look at it. And, you know, Milhouse and Bart and Lisa can sit around and be like, oh, my God, Sideshow Bob's crazy. Mr. Burns crazy. But, you know, like, but the school bus driver is all right. <laughs> uh, life is crazy, uh, but it's beautiful. And it seems, you know, we're here to enjoy the ride. Um, I'm reading a bunch of books with my fiance right now. She's in England and I'm stuck in the States in Colorado. But uh, we finished Harry Potter the other day, but I'm reading Narnia to her now, which is much quicker, I should say. Like all Narnia fits in one Harry Potter book. But um, the Reaper Cheap's whole thing at the end of, of The Last Battle is like further up and further. And I think that's really what this is all about. We're kind of enfolding on ourselves. And um, what an interesting time to have chosen to be here. Front row seats to the apocalypse or the shift or however one wants to put this. And, uh, yeah, people like you are doing the great work. So congratulations on making it this far. And it's, it's going to be great to see what, what you put out in the future. Raphael? Well, thank you very much for sharing your so story. Quite fascinating. And, yeah, I'd say, you know, enjoy teaching, making music, all the other things. And keep enjoying the ride. I guess it can only get better. Thank you. It's funny, right now it's 6.17 where I am in Colorado, and that's my birthday, so I'm always like, oh, my birthday sake. All right, well, thanks for uh, coming on again, and Raphael, whatever song you got, let it spin. Radio